We will never leave you, even in the face of our death. The richness of our lives shall be yours. All that I have, all that I've learned, everything I feel, all this and more, I, I bequeath you, my son. You will carry me inside you all the days of your life. You will make my strength your own. See my life through your eyes, as your life will be seen through mine. The son becomes the father, and the father the son. This is all I... All I can send you. Come on. Men in a Retrospective Podcast, Superman Retrospective Series. Hi. Superman? That's me. From 1978 Superman, all the way through 2016's Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, Garrett. How can one man be so square and so delicious? Matt. Long past saving. And Adam. You diseased maniac. We'll look at all the Kryptonian Sun's cinematic adventures. The problem with Men of Steel, there's never one around when you want one. Was Richard Donner's vision of Superman deserving of its iconic reputation? Easy, miss. I've got you. You you've got me! Who's got you? Superman returns as bad as it's reputed to be. Hey, you know something? You're a real pain in the neck. What about 1984's Supergirl? Well, we really better talk. Find out the answers to all these questions and more coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. This order's to go. Superman 2, released July 19th, 1981. Budget on this was $54 million. Box office, $190.4 million. And this is directed by... Oh boy. <laughs> we'll discuss it. <laughs> some people say Richard Donner, some people say Richard Lester. We're going to talk about both possibilities. I am once again joined by my two co-hosts. First, the one and only Matthew Goudreau. Matt, how are you doing, sir? Well, for the record, I've tried Neil Before Zod in front of my kids to get them to go to bed, and I'm 0 for 2. Get Terrence Stamp over there, I'm sure it will. And the Zod to our Superman and Lois, Matt. The one and only Adam Bunch. Adam, how are you, sir? Why do you say these things to me when you know I will complain about it? This movie, so quotable, so 
iconic to me as a kid. This was a big part of my childhood. Adam, how much did you watch this one? If there was a Superman movie that I had watched, it was this one more than any other. And for a lot of reasons that we'll discuss going through it, whether or not that makes it a better movie or just a more enjoyable, that's what we're here to discuss. But I think this was the movie that actually it upped what the second half of last week's discussion did. We got Krypton out of the way for the most part. We got Smallville out of the way. And this is the movie when I was young. If I was going to pop in one of those recorded VHS tapes, it was definitely Superman 2. For me, we'll get to that one next week. <laughs> but, <laughs> Mr. Goudreau, you didn't grow up in the 80s like me and Adam did. How much did you watch this one growing up? Not a lot, but I can definitively say that I have watched Superman 2 more than I have seen the original but a lot of that has to do with YouTube coinciding with me being the age I was around the time the Donner Cut was actually coming out. And that was really how I got exposed to the back story behind this particular movie, the differences, why there was so much fallout, how it tied into Superman Returns, literally because it came out the same year, ironically. So I never watched it as a kid in the vein that you guys did, because like I've said previously, I'm not the biggest Superman person in an individual context. But that doesn't mean that I do not appreciate him or was unaware of these movies, because there's stuff in this movie that has been known to the general populace outside of Superman, things that have been quoted, things that have been parodied, things that have influenced other Superman movies and other stories. So th there's a lot riding on this movie. But as a kid, I had no idea how much of a... Warner Brothers, it might as well have been the Civil War of Krypton going on behind Warner Brothers. And for all we know, they might have sent Richard Donner into the proverbial Phantom Zone if they had the ability to. Richard Donner. Ah, there's so many things that went into this. You might as well cut and paste a lot of what we said when we did the Justice League Snyder Cut and the Justice League Whedon Cut into this discussion. Because this was a big deal behind the scenes. They hire Donner after the Omen. Donner comes on. And Donner just does not like the way the Salkines are handling this production. Not the Salkines as much as Pierre Spangler. Pierre Spangler was a producer they brought on. And he was doing a lot of things that Donner just did not agree with. And, you know, I, I listened to commentaries for both of these last couple movies, boys. And, my God, Donner, to the day he died, I think, just never forgave Spangler for the way he treated Richard Donner on this film. On these two films, actually. And Matt, you say it influenced a lot of what this character goes through. I think this movie influenced a lot of superhero movies. How many times are we going to talk about when we get to Marvel when they lose their powers? How many times are we going to talk about when they do it for a girl? This is something that really, really started, I would say, with this movie. Yeah, I think a lot of the tenants, a lot of the specific dots that you could follow throughout this film, maybe even more so than last week's discussion, are things that you see still populated through so many comic books, sci-fi movies that we currently see today. Done slightly different, but you can pick apart this movie and use it almost as screenwriting sequel 101 across the board, especially, I think, maybe not at DC, but I think there's a lot of MCU that steals directly from this. And even other, I know there's going to be one or two scenes we specifically talk about, but some other big Marvel characters that have lifted directly from this film here. Now, 
I myself watched both cuts. I watched the Lester cut, and we'll talk about Richard Lester here in a bit. And I watched the Donner cut, just so I could compare and contrast. Goudreau, what about you? Which one did you watch for this? Did you watch both? I did watch both, but I watched the theatrical cut, the Lester version, first, because that was in the common place for the longest of time, Mm -hmm. because the Donner cut didn't come out until 25 years after. But you're right to go back to the point that you mentioned, and you both just discussed about this movie setting a template. I think one of the biggest, if not the biggest piece that other franchises have done. Ironically, a lot of second movies, particularly Batman Returns and X-Men 2, was the idea of having multiple villains. And big-name villains. You know, you have Lex Luthor, who is the arch-nemesis of Superman, and then having General Zod as your... I guess your primary villain of this. That's a template that, you know, X2 did, Batman Returns did. We talked about that last year. I think that's the biggest piece. And it showed that you could do it without it making, in a lot of people's opinion, seem overstuffed. How many times have we complained about that with certain X-Men 3 comes to mind? How many villains can you just shove into a movie? And importantly, this is something that a lot of people don't realize. At the time, General Zod was not a major Superman villain in the comics. This movie is really what made him... I guess, outside of Lex Luthor and Darkseid slash Brainiac, he's up there on the, ironically, the Mount Rushmore of Superman villains. And I contribute that entirely to what Richard Donner slash Richard Lester created with this character alongside Terrence Stamp. I don't wonder about you. Did you watch both cuts? Did you watch one cut? Which one did you watch for this? For this one, I knew I was only going to have time to do one. And so I went ahead and did the Lester cut the theatrical version, knowing that at least one and possibly both of you two were going to do them both. So I went ahead and kind of Luthered out of this one or uh, maybe Brandoed out and made it a little easier on myself and just took just to the theatrical run. All right. So we've been talking a lot about Richard Donner in the beginning stages of this podcast. Who exactly is the director who was credited with the version that we watched for the first 25 years before the Donner cut came out? Richard Lester. Now, this is a guy who worked with the South Kinds before. He did an earlier version of Three Musketeers. And Four Musketeers. And Four Musketeers. And, boys, this is going to come as a shock to you. He was about ready to sue the Salkines because he was not paid for working on those two films. Talk about sequelitis. We've heard this before. Literally, there's so many parallels. Also, one note about the Three Musketeers. I do consider that to be, if you're looking for... As close to a definitive version or take, Lester's two movies are the ones that I would recommend. The producers, also much like this, they split the first film into two, Three Musketeers slash Four Musketeers. And what caused Lester's threatening to sue was that the cast, much like him, said that we're only contractually obligated for one movie. So how come we're not getting paid even though it's technically two theatrical releases? So this is kind of... It's amazing how much history repeats itself with Warner Brothers because there was this, there's Superman 2, and there's also, I think this played a factor in why, and we talked about this briefly four or five years ago, why I think the decision was made to split the last Harry Potter movie into two installments because those kids signed seven film deals initially. Mm -hmm. Or however many we're going to get. I think the contract said, like, however many books, because Rowling had written all seven. So this franchise and Warner Brothers, history has repeated itself so much that I'm convinced they keep spinning the world and flying back in time and doing this paradoxical loophole. (laughs) It's unbelievable. Now, in the middle of, as Matt said, threatening to sue the Salkines, the Salkines called them up and they said, look, we got this director who is not really cooperating. We need you to be a quote-unquote mediator. We need you to come and be the go-between guy. And if you do that, we'll pay you what we owe you. (laughs) So Lester came, and that's exactly what he did. 
and then about 70 to 75%, depending on who you ask, into Donner finishing up the scenes for Superman 2, the Salkines fired him. So the Salkines then, they said, Lester, why don't you go finish this film for us? And Lester went ahead, reshot a lot of scenes, and we'll talk about them. It's funny. We talk a lot about with King, where Stephen King, where they will film his words, but not necessarily his emphasis. And I tell you, when, we, when I watched both these cuts, pretty much back-to-back last week, I was dumbfounded by how much certain scenes were so different, even though all the actors in the scene were saying the exact same thing. I knew that there were some differences, because it's been a while since I've seen either of these versions, but watching them in the same day for the first time, I was sort of startled by how contrasting not just entire scenes are rearranged, some scenes are just outright removed. The ending of both movies is totally different. There's a lot here that made me want to reevaluate the idea of doing these as two separate reviews, because this is as much of a difference in a shorter time frame as the two Justice League movies we talked about last year. It's almost a nearly identical situation where they feel like two distinct movies, although this one, not necessarily to the extreme. But there's some huge differences, and I see why there are camps. There's the Lester camp, and there's the Donner camp, and people have very strong opinions about which one they prefer. And I see both sides. We'll definitely talk about both sides, for sure. So how did this affect the actors involved in the film? Well, Christopher Reeve, there's not much about him other than people talking about him. I think he was just happy to have a job, pretty much. So he was the company man, did what he was told. Now, Margot Kidder... She was the same. She didn't really come out in the press or anything at that time when the movie was coming out to mention anything about Lester as compared to Donner. But later on, around the time the Donner cut was coming out, she did come out and say, look, Lester was pretty much an asshole on the set, and I really wish Richard Donner could have finished the movie that he originally intended. As far as Hackman and Brando are concerned, Brando, as we mentioned last week, was also suing the Salkinds. And so, in order to pretty much put to bed whether they're going to pay him for this one or not, they just cut all the scenes out. (laughs) Which, the Brando estate ended up giving the scenes to Donner later on when he restored his cut. And I definitely see the difference between those two scenes. When you have Brando give some exposition as opposed to, say, I don't know, this bald guy from THX 1138 and Susanna York who played Superman's mom, there's quite a big difference, isn't there, Matt? That whole scene, there's going to be a conversation in and of itself, because they're also, the meanings are totally different, among other things. Yeah, it's insane. But depending on who you ask, some people said that the reason why Hackman didn't come and reshoot his stuff when Lester was brought on is out of a revolt. And same with Williams. Williams did not actually score this either. Some people said, yeah, Williams got really close with Donner, and when he was fired, he just kind of left the production. Williams says that he had a scheduling conflict with Empire Strikes Back, and this guy who did the score, Ken Thorne, was one of his protégés, and he recommended him for this. And Hackman same. I think they had him for 12 days, and that was it. So once he was done, he was done. And they weren't going to get him to film scenes no matter if Donna was back or not. But it should be said, everything with Hackman in this movie is all Richard Donner stuff. For the parts that is not him, and they had someone... Oh, my God. (laughs) Another huge conversation we're going to have, for sure. Now, after this was over, you need to do 52% of the filming in order to get credit as a director or co-director. Ask Joss Whedon. No shit, right? (laughs) So... 
the Salkines went ahead after they were done. They went to Donner. They said, do you want to come to a screening and see if you want to get this co-directing credit? Richard Donner went to a screening, and I'll let everyone know when he decided that he did not want that credit and walked out of the movie. Just a hint, it's relatively early. I have a feeling I know when, yeah. <laughs> that is a lot of the story here. This has been just a notorious film as far as which cut is better, which cut is not. We'll discuss all of that. But man, all of this stuff I had no idea of until I got much older. It's crazy to think about, right, that we were watching this as kids not knowing all this. <laughs> It's amazing to have no idea. It's also crazy that what was old has become new again. That this seems to be such yeah. a refrain is absolutely kind of crazy and ridiculous. You know, and I feel kind of bad for Richard Lester. You know, he was put in an unenviable spot. And I actually, I know his previous works before Superman, and I, I like him. I could see them wanting to bring him in because of his work with the Beatles. He directed Help. He directed A Hard Day's Night. That's somebody who needs mm-hmm. to take control of uh, bigger-than-God egos. But I also adore, what is it, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Oh, yeah. Which is funny because you talk about Buster Keaton and bumbling, and God knows we get bumbling in this one as well. It seems like almost when he was done with Superman that he was kind of done with movies for the most part. He did a little bit after that. But I don't blame Richard Lester for it. And I know a lot did. I know there was sides drawn. But that's also just the ego, finances, and sometimes just flat-out assault of some of these people in Hollywood. But I'll say the Salkinds brought it amongst themselves, but I don't blame Donner. I don't blame Lester whatsoever. But it's kind of crazy how this shit keeps happening, especially with Warner Brothers. It's interesting that Warner Brothers seems to be tied to a lot of these stories, huh? Yeah. Especially since we talked about all of this, like I said, last year. I mean, at least Disney fires them before they start filming. (laughs) (laughs) Which we'll also talk about (laughs) later on this year. Yeah, and you know what? As somebody who's been in their position, I feel bad for the Salkinds, honestly. I have been a producer who has had a director just disagree with every single thing you say and goes and does their own thing. And you kind of have to tell them, look, you better get your shit together. We're kind of flipping the bill for this. You, yeah. you got it. You got to do what you're told here. And then the guy just keeps doing those things. And you got to make a decision one way or the other. I don't think they had a choice other than to fire him. And let's be honest. Superman the motion picture was a ridiculous hit. It changed superhero movies. It took some time, but it made them viable. It was a ridiculous amount of money. It was a ridiculous success. And when those kind of things happen, then everybody wants the credit. Everybody wants to be the one in charge from that point on. Whether it's the producer, whether it's the director, suddenly everybody wants to be the one whose name is above the line. When you can't have everybody's name above the line, ask Christopher Reeve, who still doesn't get top billed in this movie. Yeah, you know, yeah, we'll talk about that next but week. But sometimes the success just makes it that much harder down the road. Ask John Favreau. Absolutely. Yeah, great comparison. When you have the Brando estate trying to sue you and everything else coming down, and, you know, Mankiewicz said in the commentary to this, because I did watch the Donner cut and listen to the commentary to it, he did say that if Superman the motion picture was not a hit, they would have let Donner complete his film. And I tend to agree with that, honestly, because once Superman, like you said, Adam, became this monster hit, Now they had a little bit of power to do kind of what they wanted. All right, boys. Well, quite a preamble there. What do you guys say we kind of dive into what the Lester cut is? And me and Matt will interject a lot of what went on in the Donner cut as well. Now, Adam, had you ever seen the Donner cut before? Yeah, I've seen it, I want to say, two or three times. There was a time, once upon a time in the olden days, where you could get clips of just the scenes from the Donner cut before they were reinserted into the movie, bootlegs at cons and stuff like that. So I had seen him on their own, and I had seen it put together. I do own the Donner cut as well. So yeah, I'm familiar with it. I just didn't watch it for this go. 
So, psychedelic opening starts things off. And John Williams, as I mentioned, he had scheduling conflicts. He couldn't do this score, so he handed it off to his protege, Ken Thorne. And he's here to pretty much rehash old familiar themes while adding a couple of his own. This soundtrack is still pretty good, as it's all of Williams' old themes. But I don't know about you guys, I could definitely tell the difference. Nothing really punches you in the face like it did with that first movie, but I think that other than the Superman theme, the rest of it, you know, they play a lot of the theme behind Can You Read My Mind? That seems to be, at least for the theatrical version, that's kind of the theme throughout this entire movie is a version of that. I'm stunned that it's not John Williams. I can't think of a movie where they use his music that he's not a part of, but yeah, to bring someone in to just basically conduct an orchestra to do Williams themes is a strange decision. It definitely feels a little lesser, but I don't think it's completely missing. Don't you mean a little lesser? (laughs) (laughs) You can tell. I mean, anytime you lose John Williams, I think there is a noticeable gap. Particular, I think, of the Jaws sequels as a good example. There are some good accompaniments, but having watched the same movie, quote-unquote, twice. Of all the differences, I paid the least amount of attention to the music. There are four more obvious ones, specifically to the naked eye, and the clothed eye, for that matter, that you will notice immediately, because the two movies start in entirely different ways. Yep. In the lesser cut, we get Non taking out this stormtrooper, and these three villains who are going to be Thorns and Superman's side, they show up. And Zod does this uh, huge dickhead thing of just breaking a crystal in half. And then we cut to a trial. Now, before we get to the trial, let's talk about these three real quick. First, Sarah Douglas as Ursa. She might have been my first bad girl crush, honestly. She had some great scenes later on. And in a funny bit of trivia, most of her scenes were dubbed by Annie Ross in the Lester cut. Annie Ross would go on to play Vera in next week's movie, so stay tuned for that. Donner kept Douglas's voice for his cut. And honestly, you can't really tell. Now, Jack O'Halloran as Nan, he's the puppy dog who is abiding by his master and not really doing a very good job of it. And according to Douglas, both her and Jack O'Halloran really did not get along with Christopher Reeve at all on this set. And, of course, Terrence Stamp as Zod, just a mean asshole of a villain who wants revenge on Jarrell. Stamp is the obvious standout with his piercing eyes and powerful voice. We've already reenacted it a few times on this particular podcast. But we said last time that while Hackman was fun as Lex Luthor, he wasn't a very big threat to the Man of Steel. Now, of course, we're going to get Luthor in this one as well. But dare I say, Superman has some stiff competition here because these villains, especially Zod, are great. Well, they upped the ante because Lex Luthor was not yet at the spot in comics where he would don battle armor and physically throw down with Superman. So I thought it was a good move because sequels have to escalate. You finally have physical adversaries that are worthy of fighting Superman, and you up that even further by having multiple villains. It's not just General Zod. He's got two accompanying allies. So three against one definitely makes Superman feel like he's not going to blow through this no problem. So I, I think it's a good choice. And Terrence Stamp as Zod is still, I think, the standard for Superman movie villains, at least up to this point. Granted, they've only done... Two officially from the comics. We'll talk about why that's happened, but I think he is great. He has the theatricality that this role calls for, but there are small little nuances to his scenes. One in the Lester cut that is one of my favorite things ever, and he is 
not just one of my favorite Superman movie villains. I think he's one of my favorite comic book movie villains, period. Because you, it shows that you can do a, a very effective villain that doesn't have the most lofty of goals mm-hmm. or a giant labyrinth of schemes. He wants revenge. He feels he was slighted. You know, he's a radical. And he sees himself as a god. And I think this is how you pull that type of character off. And by the way, Sam would go on to play the voice of Jor-El in Smallville. So I love how they... Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Does he really? Yeah, and it's great. Wow. He's a real asshole in that, too. Yeah, and you tell George Lucas to kneel before him about 20 years oh, back. Oh, God. Too. Yeah, which we'll talk about. <laughs> we'll talk about here in a couple months. Adam, you started this podcast off by doing an impersonation of Zod. You must be a big fan of this guy, huh? I think Stan and crew bring the escalation that this film needs. They're in it from beginning to end. I think Stamp is fantastic with what he brings. I'm not going to say the writing does him proper throughout this entire film. I think that some of the explanation and exposition we got in last week's film makes it a little hard for me to swallow how they get to some of what happens. I think the over-exposition of stuff just makes what happens here just makes me go, no, uh uh-uh, can't happen. But that's gone away pretty quick. But Terrence Stamp is amazing. Ursa she might as well be a Bond girl. She is that femme fatale that you love. Non, I always thought he was Bull from Night Court when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, that's who he reminded me of. You might as well call this movie Superman 2 Octopussy because there seems to be so much James Bond going through this film specifically. But Non, is like, he's Jaws, right? That's exactly who he yeah, is. That's what I thought of. But Matt brought a good point that these movies made them bring back Zod in the comics. That's just how well he was received, and they were received, all the way up till current day. Zod fell back out of favor because he just did. And then even when Man of Steel, they suddenly brought Zod literally back out of the Phantom Zone in comics again. So it's nice to see the dog wagging the tail sometimes. These three have a really weird line to walk in that they have to be threatening, but yet not too threatening because, don't forget, this was advertised to kids. So they can't be a parody of themselves either. And all three of them do a remarkable job with that. And Matt, I think you hit it for me. I think the simplicity of Zod's goals is what makes this movie what it is, really. I will say, I kind of miss the simplicity of a villain like Zod who's just like, just kneel before me. Do you agree with that, Adam, that the simplicity is what kind of makes these villains work? Yeah, I do. They have a goal that's kind of ingrained in them. When it's simple, they want revenge, they want to conquer, period. There's not three, four, five, six levels to what they're doing. The only reason another villain shows up is for his own end. Their end goals don't really change throughout very much. When they find out that the son of their jailer is alive, they want to kill him, and they want to rule the planet he's on. Pretty simple, and I think it's effective that that way. Now, this trial... Due to a combination, as we mentioned, of not getting paid for the last film and Donner getting booted, Brando did not come back to film more scenes for Superman 2. So Lester did what he could with this movie screen of faces and a booming Brando impersonator, but man, this is really outlined in the Donner cut. This scene really could have used Brando in the worst way. Right, Matt? This needed Brando in so many ways because he is the linchpin that, as Zod says, the son of our jailer. And the fact that you don't see him and the Lester cut doesn't destroy their motive, but it puts a certain hindrance on it because there's not that obvious physical seeing him that makes it connect better. All the villains are proclaimed guilty, and we see that 70s album cover that we saw last week come down and take them away yet again. We then get a little rehash of the first film while the credits go by, and it's weird to think about now, but in 1980, there weren't any VCRs yet. So this kind of stuff was very common to kind of remind people what they were getting into, because let's not forget, this was all supposed to be one big story. Yep. 
Absolutely. And yeah, that's one of my earliest notes is as much as I generally would kind of roll my eyes at something like this, when you realize that the pre-VHS time, for the most part, people don't have the benefit, the luxury that they do now, where, of course, you watch the movie before you go see the sequel. So to do this recap, great idea. And also, maybe my kid is a couple years older. He doesn't know what even happened in Superman 1 because he never saw it, so I'm bringing him along. So I like the fact that they're actually using the entire opening credit sequence, which Hackman gets top billing for by the way and he didn't film for this movie specifically (laughs) let that sink in (laughs) jesus crime i think reeve is third this time and poor freaking margot kidder's seventh that's abysmal sorry that pisses me off just horrendous fucking hollywood but yeah i think the choice is a smart one i think it's a wise one and by doing so it helps the fact that you took one movie split it into two and it kind of recontextualizes that first one for a sequel. We cut to the Daily Planet, where Clark comes into work and bumps into a door right away, and just seems to be in everyone's way as he flips his hat onto the rack. James Bond style, which I wouldn't have caught if we hadn't done that retrospective a few years ago. Much different in the Donner Cut. In the Donner Cut, it's done right away. We're seeing Lois draw a Clark Kent outfit on Superman's picture in a paper, And she's already putting together that Clark is Superman. And then she jumps out a window and dares Superman to rescue her, much like she does later on in the Lester cut. And Clark comes down and he puts a couple overhangs to help her fall. And she comes down again, not really realizing that Clark is Superman, because once she gets down, she looks up and Clark's actually in the window looking down on her. Goudreau, is it a good decision to nix Lane Lowing already? Or how how do you feel about the way this is opening here? I think Donner's film... I'm going to put my cards on the table right now. I prefer the Donner cut, and this is one of the big reasons why. Because at the end of Superman the movie, Lois does notice a resemblance between the two of them, but she's like, oh, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. I like that that's immediately picked up on in the Donner cut, with the, her scribbling the glasses on the picture. In the lesser cut, in the theatrical version, it doesn't start until an act that's completely by accident, no pun intended, of her taking off his glasses. It's almost like that cut forgot that she had suspicions at the end of the first movie. Mm -hmm. So I like that Donner's cut feels more consistent in that regard. Not that Lester's opening is bad, because I I like the Perry White stuff and those kind of things, but in Donner's cut, I feel much more for Lois as a character because of not just this part, but there's obviously the most important thing later on, at least one of, that makes me buy what Clark does later on. Clark's hearing that the Eiffel Tower is being taken over by terrorists, to which Clark says, that that's terrible. And Perry White replies, that's why they call him terrorists, Kent. I love that line, especially in our post-9-11 years. <laughs> that line really rang true when I watched it this time. <laughs> Clark finds out that Lois is there, and of course he knows that this means she's in trouble. So he leaves Perry White mid-sentence to go down a dark alley and change into Superman in order to head to Paris to rescue her. And for the record, Adam, this whole Paris bombing is not in the Donner cut whatsoever. Nope. This yeah, which is, is the scene. Good for Donner. Yep. <laughs> this is the scene Richard Donner walked out on. <laughs> not six minutes in. He's out. He's like, nope, I'm not going to attach my name to this. This is not what I envisioned. I'm out. So that's why his name is not in as co-director. But we cut to Paris, where Lois is, of course, in the middle of trouble as she makes her way into the, an Eiffel Tower elevator. Why she's climbing onto the bottom of this elevator to get these terrorists, I have no idea. And it's, Lois Lane deciding that she is going to get past security by making him turn around, which is all she does. Yeah. Climbs, because I looked it up, 1,600 steps, which is how many got to climb wow. to take on terrorists by herself. 
or just to get information. This just makes no sense other than to put her in danger. Mm-hmm. None. Well, for the record, I don't think that's that far out of the realm of possibility, considering a few years after this, we saw a 9,000-year-old Roger Moore chase Grace Jones up the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> so who knows? Maybe she could have done it. But this, this scene, is, it's a bond. I'm on Donner's side. This, to me, is the template for that Wonder Woman action scene in Justice League, where it's decent action. We actually see some heroism, but it has no bearing on the overall plot. It just feels like an action scene to have an action scene. And I appreciate the Uncle Vernon cameo as much as anybody, but (laughs) I find this whole sequence, I did not miss it when I was watching the Donner Cut. Mm. She makes her way into the Eiffel Tower elevator, which is set to blow up. But who's here to rescue her but Soups himself in a scene that gets the film off to a pretty good start? We mentioned last week that it took about an hour or so for Superman to make his first official on-screen appearance. So I kind of agree with this intuition to get him on here pretty quick. So here we get it within the first 10 minutes. But this also meant that, again... Donner didn't get more than 10 minutes into the movie because this is when he walked out of the theater. And he supposedly did not watch the rest of it until he started assimilating the Donner cut. I'll agree. There's no way that we're waiting an hour for action this time. So at least getting action earlier in this film was absolutely a necessity. Yeah, well, this is absolutely... I think Batman Returns owes a lot to this movie in various ways. It's the... When Batman fights the Red Triangle Circus Gang on the streets of Gotham that opens the movie, where there's not really any information that comes from that. It's just mm-hmm. where I see Batman kick ass. And thankfully, Superman doesn't light anybody on fire in this scene, so... Wait, wait, wait. Wait, away. I'm like, okay, I, I still like that we're getting wholesome Superman... What a difference a couple years makes. We talked about Reeve in the beginning, and honestly, not much had changed from the first to second film. But these scenes at the Tower, which were obviously done by Lester, as we mentioned, is where we see where Margot Kidder was in her life. And honestly, even with gobs of makeup, you can tell that she wasn't in a really good frame of mind. She was going through a divorce. She'd be the first to say. In the years since, she has come out and said that she was a partier. And her and another woman we'll be talking about soon, Carrie Fisher, amongst others, would partake in a lot of, let's just say, fun. Here, I think she still puts on a great performance, a scene in particular later on I'm going to point out that really stands out to me. But you can tell, she's already being put through the ringer here. She is, but I think that they've taken more care to make her look more screen-ready. I think that she actually looks considerably better in this film than she did the last one. Whether it's just that they they did her makeup and hair a little better, she doesn't look like she has smoker's teeth the entire time in this one. I think she actually looks better in this, but watching the theatrical cut, that comes and goes quite a bit, depending on which scene and who directed Mm -hmm. it. Because I watched the theatrical, there's definitely some inconsistencies in performance and a little bit of everything, really. It's noticeable, but it sort of ties into my summation of both of these versions, because I think they share one universal opinion of mine, it's that I don't think either of them are what I would say definitive or, to pardon another superhero property, fantastic, because I think they're both flawed in their own ways, and they both share inconsistencies with visuals, with makeup, with people's physical appearances, just based on how these productions came. So I don't think either of these are perfect in a consistency type of manner. It's just something that comes with the territory, given how this production happened. Now, Superman takes the elevator and throws it through space, which releases the three criminals from the Phantom Zone. Mark number two for Richard Donner. In the Donner cut, Superman putting the missile into space at the end of the first one is what causes them to break out of the Phantom Zone. I like that so much better because it shows that the first movie has consequences. Yes. And it really feels like a part two. 
I don't like that we came up with this action scene to create happenstance when there was already a template established to get from A to B. As originally conceived, while Superman infamously spun the Earth backwards, which we'll talk about again later on in this podcast, the backlash of the rotation released them, which I think would have been very poetic to show as it makes Superman pay for defying his father. I agree with you, Matt. I definitely go with the Donner version of this than Lester. I have an issue with both. And the reason is, Jor-El tells Superman that I've been dead for thousands of years by the time you've seen this. Which means that these Kryptonians have been floating in the Phantom Zone for thousands of Earth years. And the way that they're close enough to Earth for this to be the one to shatter them, it's always bugged me. I think it could have been done better if it's just some type of nuclear reaction that could have shattered it. Well, guess what happens to suns like every 20 minutes in space? Sun is nothing but a nuclear fireball. So the whole way that they were released, ever since I was a kid, no matter which version, never sat well with me. However, I will agree that I think it's important that his choice at the end of the first film has consequence to it. So if you're going to ask me which one, I prefer definitely that one. So the three are now free. We go back to the Daily Planet as Clark says hi to Lois and causes a taxi to run into him. Lois tells him that he needs to look both ways before crossing the street, and he says that not everyone can have x-ray vision. Ouch. I love how he's just putting himself down in these scenes to Lois. (laughs) Not everyone can see pink panties, Lois. (laughs) We see Lois make some freshly squeezed orange juice as she tells him that he doesn't need to be jealous of Superman. She also tells him that he needs more initiative. If he sees something, he needs to go for it. That's what she does, and I love Clark's response. He's like, yes, I've noticed. Such random things that I remember from this film, which is absolutely unbelievable, was Niagara Falls and an orange freaking presser. I don't know why this freaking juice presser has stuck with me from the time that I was like five years old, but I remembered this scene freaking step by step. Every step of the way. I love these scenes because they have such great chemistry. As you mentioned, Adam, same with me. Like, I always remember her making that glass of orange juice for him. It's like two drops. You know? (laughs) I love seeing their repartee here. Yeah, apparently you must make a killing at the Daily Planet because it's so much more financially frugal to just buy a gallon of orange juice than it is to (laughs) buy the amount of oranges that are required to produce the same amount of juice through that squeezer. And even if she did, she'd probably develop carpal tunnel syndrome from the amount of time she would have to use it. So, just one of the details that always makes me laugh. Interesting note that in the uh, resort I work at, there's a, actually a Starbucks inside the resort. And every time I see them put the fresh oranges onto their fresh orange juice maker, it always makes me think of this fucking movie every time. <laughs> I see those things just lined up and I see that squeezer there. I'm like, oh, yep, that's from that movie. We then cut to prison. As Lex and Otis are still angry over the fact that Lex Luthor, the greatest genius of the modern world, is going to have to have it all end here. I do love seeing these two talk back and forth as Lex talks about a little black box that tracks alpha waves that will take him north to Superman's secret. And it should be said, again, all these scenes with Hackman were filmed by Donner himself. It's fantastic seeing them together. Their back and forth is absolutely fantastic. We know where Hackman is, so it sets that back up. Big old fan until we get to our octopusy scene here in just a few minutes, but... (laughs) Yeah, I like where this is starting off. I like where he's at, that we're, again, picking up the pieces. And I will say, if you like Hackman's Lex Luthor, you're probably going to like the Donner Cut more because he's got more footage in that. But but it's a good way to have him in this movie without having him overtake the movie, but it does beg the question. It's amazing he's still got top billing. 
yeah. given he screen time is nowhere near as substantial as it was in the first movie. And I do, I do love the fact that last week he put up such a stink about having to wear the gold cap. Well, now he's stuck because he knows in prison you're not going to get any access to your wigs. So he had no choice but to put this fucking thing back on. We then cut to a scene that gave me nightmares as a kid. I mentioned way back in our year-end show that I wanted to either be an astronaut or a marine biologist as a kid. And seeing these astronauts get destroyed by these three was fucking nightmare fuel for me. And it should be said, this was all stuff filmed by Donner. As we're seeing Ursa take a trophy from one of the astronauts, a great character trait that I love from this. She's just gathering heirlooms from each of her victims, and then she just kicks the guy away. We then see Zod pick a guy up and kick him away as he pulls his air hose off, and we see Nan just fuck with his ship as they're trying to take off. This was scary stuff for my four-year-old self. Yeah, I agree. I really dig what's here on the moon. I'm, I don't like Nan for the most part. Ursa is terrifying. Well, Zod is the general. She's the one that you have to be afraid of. And right here from the very beginning where she's pulling off that patch. And yeah, I agree with you. I love that she keeps pulling off ranks and insignias and patches and doesn't only pull them off, but attaches them to her own outfit somehow. It's just a great little trait. But like I said, it's, I think it's amazing that their Phantom Zone was just on the dark side of the moon. Perfect for that album cover. <laughs> and, you know, they're right here. But, yeah, as a kid, and agree, agree with the moon, everything else. I love we got Cliff Clavin showing up to let us know there's a problem on the moon. <laughs> I loved that because we're going to be talking about him. Well, not really, but he's in a movie we're discussing later. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, this thing pops me big. You can tell this is Donner footage because a lot of what Lester does with the Kryptonians, the stuff that's exclusively his, is a bit more comedic, and they're not necessarily as bloodthirsty as you would imagine. I mean, for the context of this. It's not like Batman Returns where you have a character talking about drowning babies. Nothing to that extreme. But the fact that they're killing civilians, like, and so nonchalantly, I think is a good way to... Again, Lex Luthor did some bad stuff, but you never felt like he was capable of shooting someone. This one, I like that they feel like more of a physical threat in more ways than one. Very progressive, too, because the United States and Russia are working together on this <laughs> space expedition. Yeah, well, with the 80s, you know, all it took was them and Rocky Balboa. To... <laughs> <laughs> These three are just amazed at their own powers, and Zod comes to the conclusion that the sun is giving them their powers, and they will head to the place called Houston to rule. That's what I love so much about this character. There, there is no real complications with him. Like I said, he, he was wronged by Jor-El, so of course he's going to want revenge. But he doesn't know that Kal-El's alive yet. All he wants at this point is power and to rule. That is it. We go back to the prison as a guard is doing a check on the all the cell blocks. He gets to Otis and Lex's cell, and he just can't tell that it's actually a projection of them playing chess. We cut to outside as Lois is making shadow puppets in the spotlight. They see Miss Tessmacher in a hot air balloon with a ladder. Lex makes his way up, but poor Otis, he's stuck. And Matt won't have the luxury of seeing any more of Otis's bumbling comedy as he's gone out of the series forever after this scene. <laughs> yeah, he's still got 20 more years to do in my book. <laughs> hot air balloon, interesting way to leave this prison. Yeah, amazing that Ned Beatty gets billed the way he does, being that he's already out of this film. <laughs> Yeah, we we discussed that Christopher Reeve showed up on the set of Octopussy, and that oh, was yeah. being done. So it's exactly what it made me think of here with this freaking hot air balloon. <laughs> there seems to be so many Roger Moore-type Bond campy moments throughout this Superman movie, and it made me think of his connection showing up on sets and his friendships connected to that franchise. And I don't know why I see so much of it in this movie, but I do. Well, you also see it because there's a infamous person from the Roger Moore films that has oh, an appearance in this God. movie as well. 
We then cut to Niagara Falls, as Clark and Lois are there on an undercover trip to expose a honeymoon racket. Huh? Okay. <laughs> Where's uh, Heavy reporting, I tell <laughs> We're seeing a romantic fireplace, a pink bear, more on this later, and a vibrating bed. Clark tells Lois that she looks very pretty, as he asks what they wanted to do about the sleeping arrangements. And then Lois just points him to the complimentary couch. We then get to the hot air balloon, as Lex tells... Miss Tessmacher about his plan to head due north. We then cut back to Niagara Falls as we're seeing a kid mess around on a railing and Lois takes off Clark's glasses to clean them. As she reaches up to put them on, she sees that something's amiss and she starts putting some things together. And as you said, Matt, this scene was actually at the end of the last film. Yeah, and it just makes Lois seem much less intelligent in the Lester version. I guess the mind kiss happened at the end of the first movie <laughs> to explain why it takes her till now. And if I'm Superman watching this kid, there's a part of me that just wants to say, you know what, I'm going to let God take this one. <laughs> <laughs> You're not kidding, he's a little punk too. Clark. Oh, yeah. My note here. This kid gets what he deserves. <laughs> this, yeah, this is like me watching Jurassic Park. Where I'm like, oh, go back on the fence a second time and up the voltage. You know what? Those parents, if your kid is playing with a rail at Niagara Falls, don't turn your back to your kid, please. <laughs> or if you do, jump over the rail with them. These parents got what he deserved, I guess. <sighs> Clark distracts Lois by taking an order for hot dog and orange juice as the boy falls towards the water. Now, I mentioned last week that the effects, for the most part, they held up pretty well. Here, they're still very good for the time, but there are times, especially during this rescue scene, that you could definitely see the seams. Am I the only one here? Am I being too picky? No, you can see the compositing, especially with the waterfall in the background. Some of those things are a bit more noticeable, but if we're going to talk about bad effects, we should save that conversation for a little bit later. You're not wrong. Is it just me, or does this boy seem to fall about 50 seconds? Yeah, I know that Niagara Falls is a, I mean, it's a long drop, but this kid, it took longer for Zod and crew to get here from the moon than it does for this kid to fall to Niagara Falls. It's basically like when Palpatine gets thrown down the Death Star shaft. (laughs) Or, no, better example, Ninja Turtles 3, when there's that five-second delay from when he hits the water to the splash sound. <laughs> I'm like, clearly time works differently for Superman. Maybe they're trying to explain that he moves so quickly that quick silver effect, but I think I'm reading too much into it. Well, he apparently moves faster than the Flash and has the same effect of phasing in and out of his outfit every time he wants to change. Superman rescues the boy, and Lois puts together that when Superman is there, Clark isn't. There's a great exchange between old ladies here that I would not have seen if I didn't have the subtitles on. As one says, what a nice man. And the other says, of course he's Jewish. <laughs> oh, space Jesus. It's just funny that they said that about a character who owes a lot to Christianity. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Made by a couple of Jewish guys, too. Yeah, that's probably why they put that in. Yeah, probably. Yeah, absolutely. Clark shows back up with Lois's hot dog, and Lois is very suspicious. We cut back to Tessmacher and Luther as Luther barks orders to head north. They get Yeah, and it's not Gene Hackman. That's not his voice. Yeah, yeah, there's the first part of the stand-in here. Great impression, though. I really couldn't tell the difference if I wasn't paying attention. Well, he has a more consistent Hackman than Gene does by the end of the day. <laughs> no wonder why he gets top billing. <laughs> they get to the fortress where, in the Donner cut, Tessmacher discovers Superman's toilet. <laughs> which, which is a detail... To be fair, I have been curious about it as well. And apparently the Fortress of Solitude in either version is completely furnished because apparently Superman has a kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> it's furnished. It's open. You can just fly right fly in. Fly right in. Yeah. There's no, 
Yeah, he'd make a killing on Airbnb sites. <laughs> <laughs> or go back to Bond, right? Die another day, just make this into an ice palace, right? Mm-hmm. At least Teen Titans go to the movies had to find a way to sneak in. Yeah, right. Lex starts grabbing random crystals, and it is here where Brando would have really helped this movie, which that he is in this scene in the Donner cut, but instead of Jarrell, we're getting this bald THX-1138 reject, <laughs> and Susanna York, Superman's mom, who gets a bigger part here because of Brando's absence. Now, I can kind of go with the mom here because of the later situation that Clark finds himself in. It has to do with love. Lord knows every time it came to love in my life, I always went to my mom for advice. But there's no question in my eyes that Brando's absence really hurts this film, especially in these scenes. So it works in one capacity because it actually makes Laurel seem important that she also was going to help educate Clark not just the father, but it also causes a problem in that whenever she's on screen, these feel more like they're automated messages. With Brando later on, it actually feels like he's having a real conversation with somebody. These feel like automated voice messaging software, except you see the face, Mm -hmm. where it doesn't feel like he's actually talking to somebody. They're just listening, which works fine here because they're just listening to information. But later on, it doesn't work as well and changes the meaning entirely, like I said earlier. I like having Lara be the one to dispose this information. I think York does a very good job. I think she was hosed last week. So being that she was cut out without a line before, and just knowing how important the Cal's mother is to him. I mean, shoot, we never get to see Martha again mm-hmm. after he left Smallville. So I think it's important to see a boy's first love is his mother. So I think it's important to see that here, and I like it. I don't miss Brando when I'm watching the movie, only because his performance was so... I'm here to get a paycheck, that I think she's at least bringing something to the lap and she's delivering. I think another thing happened between the first Superman movie and the second Superman movie, whereas they didn't need Brando's name to sell it anymore. So Brando was a movie star, and we talked about it last week, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But by the time the 80s had rolled around, people had kind of moved on from Brando, and they didn't need his name to sell a movie. But the weird thing is, Brando would work with the Salkinds again, in that weird Christopher Columbus movie that wasn't done by Ridley Scott? <laughs> so, not like he learned his lesson here. Yeah, well, I mean, Brando found True North, but it was going to Burger King, not... <laughs> <laughs> they took a revolutionary way to market this movie. This was the first commercial that ever played on this brand new format for teens and young adults, MTV. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You know, yeah, great call. The very first commercial there, so... They had a market they were going for, and yeah, you weren't using Brando this time to sell that market. Mm -hmm. This is where Lex learns of the three criminals that have equal powers as Superman himself, and without a death penalty, they could still be roaming around. (laughs) It seems funny. I mean, one, guess what? I guess they should have killed these three. There's my pro-tempty stance. (laughs) But that seems like such a deliberate line to put in here about death penalty, you know? (laughs) Yeah, We go back to Niagara Falls, where Lois has the picture in her mind that Clark is Superman, and she says that she's so convinced he's Superman, she'll put her life on the line for it. She jumps into the water, and Clark is trying so hard to rescue her as his bumbling self. He runs past people and follows her through the rapids as she yells for Superman. He does cut down a branch with his laser vision, and I do love this move Reeve does, where he just kind of looks around before using it. Again, Christopher Reeve is so mm-hmm. self-conscious while doing this role. I wouldn't have caught that if I wasn't really paying attention for this review. But before he loses his laser vision, he looks around, makes sure no one's looking, stands straight up like Superman does, and then does it. Just fantastic job by Reeve again in this movie. 
Yep, agreed. And he doesn't do it as Clark Kent, given his slight demeanor changes to use his powers of Superman. And also, got to notice, first time we've seen it. Yes. They introduce new powers in this film without finding the need to overly explain it, but this is the first time we get his key slash laser vision right here. Yep. Would it cut through the glasses? Of course it would, but who's thinking about logistics in this kind of thing, especially when you're a kid and you're watching this? So Lois grabs the branch, and Clark makes his way down before falling in the water himself, which was a great bit. Lois should have let Lois go just like he should have let the kid go. (laughs) (laughs) Lois then just feels really ashamed that she actually thought that this guy, he's falling in the water and bubbling while rescuing her with Superman, and they make their way out. We then cut to the villains as they land in. You know, it wasn't until this viewing that I put together that they weren't actually in Houston, Texas. (laughs) I like that that's actually a joke, because you assume they are. Yeah, I assume assume for 30 years that they are. Especially because we get Sheriff Peppa, so it seems like we're in Texas, but nope, nothing like Houston, Idaho. Houston, Idaho. To me, it almost played off Paris, because there's a Paris, Texas. So to me, it was a little wink-wing that this was a Houston, Idaho. By the way, my mom, to this day, still says Planet Houston. Every time the Houston Astros or the Texans are playing on TV, without fail. It's so funny. It just tells you about the impact that Terrence Stamp had. <laughs> My mother, to quote his lines in this movie. Zod walks on top of the water as Ursa gets bitten by a snake and subsequently sets it on fire and is just amazed at herself. But Nan, he can't seem to set a stick on fire. Uh, I don't know. The performance, he's got performance anxiety. (laughs) Non seeming like a little infant while these two are doing it. I I don't know. It's a little too Ned Beatty for me. Mm. I get that maybe that's what they're supposed to be going with here, but it's just, it gets a little too slapsticky the way that they use Non. That's my problem. It almost feels like he's here to offset the two of them. Speaking of fire, we cut to Lois still down on herself over the fact that she thought Clark was Superman. But as Clark goes to get a comb for her, he trips over this goddamn pink bear and down into the fire go his glasses. She once again sees him without his glasses, not to mention his hands not being burnt. And Clark knows there's no turning back at this point. It's a proven fact now. He is, in fact, Superman. I like the scene just for the emotion of it. But I think that, A, if he is, in fact, Superman, he would not have tripped over that fucking bear and B, the way Donner does it, again, is better. Because in that version, she shoots him with a gun. And when he tells her that she could have killed Clark if she was wrong, she tells him, you mean with a blank? Greatly done scene. This was actually, they inserted this scene in. This is why I can't really recommend the Donner cut, honestly. Because this is a scene that they inserted from an audition. This wasn't even actually a film scene. This is just something, the audition. But the scene itself plays... The bullet itself, scene. Yeah. It plays itself out so yeah. perfectly that I really wish I could have seen it. But that's why I can't really recommend this cut. The 30 pounds of Christopher Reeve that are not in that scene, notwithstanding, I like it better. But the issue I have is, while I like the idea that he's trying so hard to be Clark Kent that he accidentally stumbles, I don't like that Lois discovers it by accident. That's my big problem. I like in the Donner Cut that she makes an intelligent decision, knowing that he's Superman deep down. And even if she's wrong, she has blanks. So it's not like she'd be murdering this person, but she's so confident that it's almost like she doesn't need that bluff in her arsenal. So I can look past the difference in the screen test because I think the weight of the scene speaks for itself, and I vastly prefer it. 
Yeah, my issue is, one, I like the audition scene, and frankly, I like the fire scene. It took me back to being a kid watching it for the first time and understanding what I was seeing. But it happens so quickly after she threw herself into the water that it doesn't give a moment to breathe with her thinking that she was wrong before she's proven right. It's too quick that it doesn't matter that she basically threw herself off a ledge for no reason. Superman tells her now that she knows, it'd be best if she knew it all. So he decides that they should just go to his place. We then cut... Hey, that's a good line. (laughs) (laughs) We then cut to fucking Sergeant Pepper. You know, Tom Mankiewicz... (laughs) Yeah. Tom Mankiewicz worked on the Bond films and this one, in the beginning stages, I should say. Was this a Tom Mankiewicz get? Because I hate the fact that we have this guy back. It's got to be, but I do think at that time, if you were getting... The sheriff, you either got him or you got, what's the name from Dukes of Hazard or Smokey and the Bandit. You had three that continuously played mm-hmm. just the large, overweight, loudmouth, racist sheriff. You had the three of them, and that's who you got. So now he's here with a police partner. They come across the three Kryptonian villains who definitely aren't from Los Angeles, as they seem to think. (laughs) They won't budge off the road. And we're seeing more effects like Zod taking the shotgun from his hands while using his heat vision and then shooting himself with said gun, calling it a crude noisemaker. Because Zod suddenly has telepathy? Or I, the powers that they get and lose in this film are you might as well have Tim Burton making a Batman movie while never reading a Batman comic oh boy. for the way that they don't know what these guys can do because <laughs> they just they don't know the powers of these. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, oh, you know what would be cool? Have them do this. What are we going to get? Lasers shooting out of their hands? Well, that would make sense because they have unlimited power, to quote mm-hmm. the emperor who can shoot like things. <laughs> it's basically what... I mean, look, this movie, the Kryptonians can fucking do anything, as we'll see in the climax with maybe the dumbest conclusion in this movie. <laughs> so I guess it's like Green Lantern Constructs. Whatever you can think of, you can do. We didn't see Non lifting the car. And of course, he's just fascinated with the siren, even offering it to Zod with his little growls or whatever this noise is before before cradling it like a baby (laughs) very silly I don't like that they basically made him Solomon Grundy that's a great comparison yes we cut back to Superman and Lois they've decided that they don't need jobs as they leave Niagara Falls and head to his place (laughs) back to planet Houston as Nam burns a piece of wood and Ursa beats a guy in arm wrestling which was a scene I always loved. This is my that detail I'm talking about. There's a, if you notice, Zod is just standing yes. there staring at a piece of pie. <laughs> yes. Because he has, he has no yep. idea what it is. That's one of my favorite details in almost any movie, that he just, this militaristic general warmonger is just standing there, completely fascinated by a piece of pie. <laughs> <laughs> but he's also rolling his eyes like at to- Ursa as she's doing this. And that's why I love Terrence Stampin this so much. His reactions to these two is what really makes it for me. Yep. You both hit it. <laughs> that's going with is yeah. Stamp finding a way to be perplexed by what he's seeing, you know that's not in the direction that he's bringing that. And yeah, his eyes rolling to Ursa that he's just like, ah, here she goes yeah. again. <laughs> you know, I love it. Absolutely love it. <laughs> Zod throws the guy after he threatens to beat up Ursa. And I love, and again, more reasons why I love Stamp. As he says that these humans are beginning to bore him. <laughs> but there's a poignant moment here. As the kid of the guy being hung in the air begs Zod to let him go, he calls him Mr., and Ursa corrects him by saying he's a general. Just a small moment for the scent, but that for some reason always stuck with me. He's not a Mr., he's a general. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just great. Agreed. 
We go back to the fortress, as this is where Superman says that the crystal called to him, and it was indeed the crystal that built his fortress of solitude. And at this point, Lois just seems confused. <laughs> she's just like, oh, <laughs> she's just kind of going along with it. She says that the place is nice, but it, it kind of needs a girl's touch, especially around dinner time. And this makes Superman jump to life as he flies to St. Lucia to pick some flowers. <laughs> Funny story here, this was at a time when you just couldn't just CGI a place for Superman to go. Producers begged to have Superman go to St. Lucia, which is located right off the Caribbean, to get these flowers. They swore it added to the romanticism of Superman, but according to Donner, in reality, all they wanted was a paid vacation. It's the Adam Sandler model. Oh. <laughs> But we cut back to Houston, Idaho, where the three Kryptonian villains are in full power. And Zot likes that the whole planet outside of planet Houston is watching them. And Nan takes care of some military insurgents. Ursa blows a helicopter a kiss. And Zod blows some fire right back toward its own flamethrower. This was a cool effect. Yeah. I like the escalation in battle here as they're going through. Their powers are upping. They seem to be enjoying their new powers little by little. I wish it, I don't know, they're not frightened by them. I wish it was a little, oh my goodness, look what we can do, but I don't mind. They feel like nothing would surprise them that they would just take full advantage of them, which they are. Mm -hmm. But I like that there's an escalation as to who's coming to attack them. And it's like swatting flies. It's almost like they hope for more escalation just to see what they can do to have an excuse. Of course, all of this is going on while Superman is getting laid. Speaking of soups, he's having champagne with Lois and sharing that he likes being Clark Kent because it was what made him meet her. We then see Zod proclaim himself the ruler of the free world, and he finds that there is a president, and if the president does not obey him, all of his cities will end up like this one. We cut back to Superman, who makes the dumb choice that so many other heroes make after him, and we are going to cover them all on this podcast. <laughs> he decides to abandon his powers for love. He gives up his powers for Margot Kidder. But this is where Brando's absence, again, just really hurts the film because I think this should be father-son. And man, the stuff, mm -hmm. the stuff he shares with Brando in this scene is really poignant in that Donner cut, isn't it, Matt? It absolutely is. And it also, the Donner cut explains this better, where Superman talks about when he's talking to his father that I realize I'm being selfish, but at the same time, Shouldn't I be allowed to be happy? It's that question of, sort of, Batman has this as well, the, when have I given enough? Something his mother does not say that I think is very important is Jarrell says, you can't put one human above everyone else. Which apparently, comic book writers stop at that because they consistently make Lois Lane the most important thing in Superman's life, and he repeatedly does that. It's not bad that he talks to his mom, but the conversation, it doesn't feel like they're having one. It's just, we knew you'd have this conversation with us one day, and we dreaded it. So step into this chamber. Aye. When he talks to Jarrell, it actually feels like they're having a conversation, and that ties into the biblical component more so because there's the father-son parallel. Uh, and I think it's more important later when he has that, you were right, Dad, I'm sorry, that we can all relate to in our lives that just makes it so much better. I think this is the part that is hurt most in Lester's version when you compare it to the Donner Cut. Yeah, I agree. And it's not even for love, because they love each other. They can have a way to do it. It's, i got to give up my powers to get laid. i got to give up my powers to have sex with this woman, because it's slightly different in the two different versions of it. And it just, it doesn't sit right that way. Mm -hmm. The conversation is so much better with his father, because it has meaning behind it. And also, this would have worked, I think, as its own movie, if he was without his powers for the entirety. He's without mm -hmm. his powers in the Lester cut, and the Donner cut, for that matter, for, what, 15 minutes? Yeah. And obviously Spider-Man 2 borrowed this 
and I say borrowed in quotes, more like stole. <laughs> but but I think they do it better because I think that because Spider-Man is so much about responsibility and he's without his powers for a considerable portion of that movie, it plays better. And that's tied into him having guilt over his place and what happened. Here, it's just the Kevin Smith kryptonite condom joke. I think that's where that, where that came from, to be honest. Now, I've never liked this story beat. It goes two ways. He does not have to live with the happiness because it's not long enough, and he doesn't have to deal with really contemplating a choice because it's not long enough. To your point that, yeah, you know, we get a scene of him that way, and there's a result we'll talk about here in a minute, but there just doesn't feel stakes behind this. It's unfortunate because this should be such a defining moment. You should feel that he really is torn by this choice, that he is two people trying to decide which one he's going to live as. Also the question of, was this too early to pull this kind of story? Because if this is indeed one and two is one movie, so part of his origin is choosing to give up his powers, mm-hmm. that seems like something that you wouldn't do until later. And great, Spider-Man 2 has this problem as well. Unless you do this when he's in his 40s or what have you, it always seems like it's premature. I mean, the first movie seems that it, once we get to the dating planet, it seems like it takes place in the span of like three days. So we're at this point. I mean, I know people like to make fun of Dark Knight's Dark Knight Rises, but that means what? We've had like two weeks of Superman on Earth at this point. <laughs> All that being said, this whole scene of him in this chamber, the way his whole musculature and bones are being seen, and the way the outside of the chamber is all blowing up as he's in there, that gave me nightmares too as a kid. (laughs) This is probably what caused the polar ice caps to stop melting. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of those nightmare fuel moments when you're Mm -hmm. a six, seven, eight-year-old kid is seeing this skeleton and musculature and... But after it ends, he emerges in a white shirt and black pants, and now the question is, how the hell are they going to get home? Which, uh, I don't know, Lex suddenly procured a freaking snowmobile <laughs> earlier with this movie with Miss Tessmacher out of nowhere. And by the way, Miss Tessmacher, never heard from again. She's up there somewhere. She, You know what? That would have been funny. Have Lois walk around and suddenly bump into Miss Tessmacher. <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs> we cut to the Croptonians changing Mount Rushmore to their own faces as Lois and Clark are shown in perhaps the most comfortable bed I've ever seen. So that gag of the Mount Rushmore, mm-hmm. it plays well for this movie because the Kryptonians are more, they play more for humor. I like how in the Donna Cut, though, they just destroy the Washington yeah, Monument. Yeah, I do too. And for the record, I can't watch this scene anymore because the one movie that actually did this better was Mars Attacks. Oh, yeah. Where they literally, they carve their faces. It's, all, it's the exact same thing. I can't take this scene seriously because that's where my brain goes to. I half expected them to start bowling with the Easter Island heads like they do in that movie as well. <laughs> the Kryptonians, they make their way to the White House, and we're seeing the Secret Service completely taken out as the flag falls, and they break down the door to the presidential chamber. And I do love how Zod points to the eagle on the floor and is like, I see you are practiced in worshiping things that fly. <laughs> Again, all Donner stuff. He puts together that this schlub he gets to kneel before him is not the president, but E.G. Marshall, who we'll talk about again when we get to Creepshow, by the way. E.G. Marshall steps forward and kneels before Zod, saying that he's doing it for the whole world. We cut to Lois and Clark, who pull up to a hot dog joint, and Clark's back is not feeling too well. It starts hurting even more, though, as the first greaser he meets without his powers completely dismantles him, causing him to bleed. As Clark's on the ground, he sees the president on TV begging Superman to save him with Zod challenging him in the background. This dude beating him up. This was like, oh god, Superman's getting beat up. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, as, as a kid, there was almost 
nothing more stark. I mean, I got so many distinct memories of this movie. One of them is Superman laying there on the floor yeah. going, my, my blood, I'm bleeding, and just realizing that Superman can bleed. Mm-hmm. Not to take a line from another movie we discussed, but when you're a kid, yes, you've seen it. Yes, you know his powers are taken away. You kind of understand that, but to watch Superman bleed and get beat up this way was just like a, oh, shit. Yeah. It's effective. I'll say that. I like that he realizes the multitude of his mistake. I like that he's defending Lois's honor, but I wish it came from him being unable to save somebody. And he realizes that that's his higher calling. It's that, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Because one thing yeah. that I love about Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 is that without his powers, Peter is still able to go into a burning building and save somebody. I kind of wanted a scene like that here. And in many ways, I think Spider-Man 2 is a better version of this movie. It just doesn't have multiple villains. <laughs> All of this causes Clark to already rethink his decision, as you guys said. Pretty quick here. Yeah, I got beat up, so I gotta go get my powers back. Well, not only that, seeing Zod on TV really did. And still, I did the world wrong. It's like, yeah, I fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> this is a long walk back with your head hung low. I was just about ready to say. <laughs> yeah, that was a silent car ride. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he makes the decision to go back and get his powers, and then we cut to Clark moving through the snow, and my God, what a hitchhike this is. <laughs> he makes it, though, as his home is now in shambles. He metaphorically talks to his parents. He's yelling at them, but no one's answering. But once again, in a moment of weakness, he spots the green crystal that started it all, and once again, the scene of him finding it never fails to give me chills. I do really like this scene here, but fuck. Again, Donner does this so much better. <laughs> And boy, it's really easy to reverse something that we were told was irreversible. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But you know what? Donner explains this in that cut because Brando yes. said, okay, this means that the father actually has become the son. That's why I like it in the Donner cut because everything comes full circle. I also love this next scene of the Kryptonians in the White House because one thing they have found is now that they have all this power, they are fucking bored out of their mind. <laughs> I love that fact. Me too. Yeah, I love that they're playing with the, um, I don't know what you call the, the, the amicus, I don't know yeah, what you call yeah. that. One of my teachers oh, yeah, used yeah. to have that. I used to do that a the lot. Amicus. Yeah. Yep. But when you're bored, who else can you turn to but Lex Luthor? Luthor shows up <laughs> to say that he can lend his mind, which they do not want. But what they do want, the son of Jorel, is something else he can give to them. And that is what Zod wants as killing him would signify revenge for their imprisonment. This is when I almost wish that there was another movie, or that this was two movies, because Lex getting the knowledge that he gained in The Fortress of Solitude should be its own film, and that advanced knowledge should be its plot to what's going on. Because all it is is he got there, he got all the knowledge of the crystals and something that Superman sat there and did for 12 years, Lex apparently did in 12 hours, but the only thing is, is, hey, I know who this guy is. You can also use that to explain how Lex builds his empire mm-hmm. and becomes the real self-made millionaire. You know, I like that it's that used car thing, of, but wait, there's more. There's always that additional bit of information that he's hiding. But Zod's right. He's like, look, I have no need for you. It's not until he offers Superman that he's like, all right, I'll keep you alive until you outlive your usefulness. What about when he offers the beachfront property in fucking Australia, too? Nice little callback to the first film. <laughs> Love that. But it's here that we realize that the discussion of Jor-El, and that, that wasn't on their mind. They were here just to take over yeah. because that's their purpose. Now it's like, oh, wait a minute. That's right. The guy that put us there, we can get back at. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, he's been dead for thousands of years from what we were told, but okay. We mentioned last week that we do love Hackman in this role, even if he doesn't play Lex Luthor the way Lex Luthor was meant to be played. But Hackman is, again, great here. Again, all done by Donner. But the way he says they are a powerful three and changes it to four when he hears Nong growling at him. I like Luthor more in this one, only because this isn't a master plan. It is him being a constant thorn in Superman's side. That's all he is here. I also love how he does the Nixon peace sign yeah. when he goes with Australia. Yeah. 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 And he, puts, he puts his feet up on the desk. Yes. Fucking fantastic. No, used car salesman Lex is an absolute workable Lex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We cut back to the Daily Planet as Lois promises, if it is all possible, Superman will be there. But when there's a rumbling in the Daily Planet, it is the Kryptonians there to look for Superman. They tear through the offices, and I do like this shot of the glass falling right in front of Perry White as they're going in the office. Mm-hmm. They knock him she out. Yelled, but when Perry White gets knocked out, Lois should have yelled, wake up, champ. That would have been the greatest. <laughs> 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 yeah, this is a, Jack Cooper's a little boy from that Yes, movie. yes. Nice mm-hmm. callback, sir. Lex makes his way in, wondering when the three goofballs were going to learn how to use a tour. No. <laughs> he tells them that if they keep Lois in their grasp, Superman will come after them. To which Ursa says, what an undemanding man this Superman must be. <laughs> Just completely undermining her. When they're both on screen together, it's almost like they're deliberately trying to contrast Ursa and Lois. Mm-hmm. Their hair is the same shade, their lipstick and makeup is fairly similar, when by the end of it, it shows just how close they are. But it's almost a deliberate attempt to kind of contrast them with Zod's quote-unquote woman and Superman's woman. But Superman does show up, and I love Luther here when he's like, oh, Superman, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I did really like Gene Hackman last week, but here, for some reason, I don't know if he was in the zone when he was making this, his lines just really roll off this time. I just think this version of Lex, because he's not the overly threatening mm-hmm. Lex Luthor, he works better as a sleazy businessman. He doesn't overtake the movie like he sometimes does in the first movie. Granted, it's not as bad as Nicholson in 89, but here I think he's used really well. Yeah, becoming a master manipulator to these three, just it's right in his wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. The villains head out, and we have a battle on the streets of Marlboro advertisement-filled Metropolis. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Hey, kids, want a Siggy? Jesus. Well, that explains probably Lois Lane must be their best customer. Yep. It's quite a chain smoker in these movies. And they, every time they show the pack, it is a Marlboro pack. Yeah, when your film propagates a congressional investigation, yes. you know you went a step too far. Yes. As a kid, I love this stuff. And I can definitely see the scenes as an adult. But I still think it's fun. Zod calling Superman a coward and throws a brick wall at him, only for it to explode all over the people below. And I also just love the look on Reeves' face as it blows up, knowing that the people below are in danger. Again, always genuine to that character. Is this something that Reeves brought, or was this in the comics as well? He's always tried to protect the people above all else. I think, though, that, and this is going to be a discussion that comes up later, and it's amazing that there wasn't an internet back then. Why don't you leave Metropolis so the people aren't in danger? instead of fighting right in the middle of it. Hmm. Parts of this are great. Parts of this get really slow. Parts of this go on too long. Parts of this get campy. There's every emotion going through watching this because it goes from exciting to boring to slapsticky. The inconsistency in one single action scene is kind of stark. Superman kicks Zod as Non holds Superman, and then Ursa shows up with a flagpole. But Superman ducks, and I love the comment from below where it's like, wow, home run. 
My dad always used to laugh at that line. Superman saves a baby from getting crushed and puts the tower on Non, trapping him. But this gesture makes Zod figure out that Superman actually cares for these people. So he's going to hit him where it hurts and start destroying the city, hopefully putting more people in danger. He starts heating up a diesel fuel tank as Superman grabs a mirror and reflects it back at him and cools off the fuel tank with his super breath. New power again, we see that cooling breath, which is going to matter in a different movie, but first time we see it here. Mm -hmm. When it goes direct, some of it just feels so slow motion and some of it feels action-packed. I believe a man can fly, and I believe a man can lay on a table. <laughs> it kind of goes back and forth and back and forth. But when some of these people were in danger, when some of the, ah, oh, think of the people, I believe Superman cares about protecting people. And I think the longer it goes, the more I'm bugged by just how back and forth it goes inconsistently. Wow. See, I'm having a lot of fun with this stuff. Matt, what about you? Depends on the version. Lester's fight is more fun, quote-unquote. The Donner Cut's a little bit more intense, because they got rid of the stuff like the guy in the phone booth, oh, and yes. uh, there's a couple other, like those side gags are eliminated in the Donner Cut. They both work. I think they're both impressive for the time. It's cool to see Superman actually throw down with somebody, which apparently people didn't get enough of, so much so that the promise of one of the movies later on down the road is, oh, you're going to Superman punch people. Oh. We then get a rumble under the city between Non and Superman that we don't see, but we hear as Superman wins and throws him away. Ursa hits him with a manhole cover as they fight in a Marlboro truck, and <laughs> Superman throws Zod right into a Coca-Cola sign. <laughs> Ursa and Non, they grab a bus, and again, the genuineness of Reeve as he yells, No, the people! as the bus is being thrown at him. It always gets me every time. He tries catching the bus, but we don't hear anything from him as people make their way out, and everyone assumes that Superman's dead. We're not supposed to think he's dead, right? We're just supposed to go with the people here. Yeah, I don't think there's any... I mean, if nothing else did, I don't know why any of the audience would be expected to think the bus did actually kill him. Mm -hmm. It does cause... And this is another thing that Spider-Man 2 takes. Matt, we seem to be talking about that movie as much as this one. But the fact that the people of the city rally around the hero is what happens here as well. Oh, yeah. The, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, the first two, are very much the spiritual successors of these. Mm-hmm. We then get a scene that should feel menacing, but as Matt mentioned, under Lester's direction, feels awful slapstick. We see the Kryptonians, they blow Super Breath as phone booths with people still talking fall over and waitresses lose control on their roller skates. Amongst all this chaos, Superman makes his way out of the Marlboro truck and flies away, causing Zod to call him a coward. Again, too slapsticky for me. Yeah, and this is what I mean, is by the time we get to the end of it, that the three Kryptonians, for all their menace and fear, just going to sit there blowing breath. I guess it's fearsome if they don't have an Altoid. <laughs> but it's because I'm watching the theatrical cut, yeah, the slapstickiness of it takes away from the menace. The guy, specifically with that phone booth, flies away. He's still talking and laughing on the phone. Mm. Now, you're taking your kids to it. They're having a good old time. I'm a mid-40s man watching this, and I'm engrossed in some of the action, and then it just turns into Ned Beatty might as well have shown back up just to fall downstairs. It goes that way. Yeah, he's not wrong. And to his point, the reason why the Altoids aren't there is because it was delivering in Gotham, and the delivery was not for another three days. <laughs> but the Coca-Cola side, I mean, the product placement in this movie is a sign of things to come from Man of Steel. It's... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Wayne's World said, oh, my God, that's a lot of product placement. <laughs> the Kryptonians fly back to the Daily Planet, and they grab Lois as Luther says that he knows Superman's address. They fly over there as poor Lois has to rely on Non to not make her fall. Ursa drops off Luther's stand-in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what bugs me before they go here is... 
cue George Bush with victory accomplished banner. Freaking Zod's just like, he flew away. Victory is complete. <laughs> what? Huh? Mission accomplished? Like, yeah, George W. sort of way. Yeah. Like, like, dude flew away. That wasn't mission accomplished. Victory wasn't complete. So it's amazing that it turned into, we're going to kill him to, uh, he flew away. He's a coward. Good enough. Oh, God. Funny story here. So after Hackman's 12 Days were up, he was just like, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to come back to film anything. But they still needed Luther here in these scenes. So they did this whole convoluted thing of dropping Lex off about 25 feet from where everyone else was and occasionally cutting to the stand-in and using some very good voice dubbing. I'll go ahead and say it sounds like Hackman to at least keep Lex in the scene. The dubbing there works. Yeah. When he's taunting Zod to try to go up and get him. Yeah. I don't know why he turned into Irish Lex Luthor. (laughs) (laughs) But, oof, it's magically delicious. (laughs) Zod calls the fortress a morbid self-replica of a world long since vanished. Ouch. And as Superman shows up. I like that. Yeah. I I like that they acknowledge that it harkens back to Krypton. I do, too. Look at you being the Brando and calling it Krypton. (laughs) As Superman shows back up, he's attacked by Nan, and Superman fights him off with the S off his chest. Mm. <laughs> this, the cellophane this shower curtain. This, to me, is the back credit card of Superman, where I'm like, who thought this was a good idea? Dude, we're going to get that <laughs> next week. You know what? Here's the thing. Lester admitted that his parents would not let him read comics, so he came into this not really knowing what the fuck oh, he shows. was making. Yeah, it definitely Clearly. Shows. It shows in this entire last freaking act. Yeah, absolutely. So this whole thing, look, for somebody who didn't have any comic book knowledge and is like, you know what, I'm going to do this. I don't mind it. Now, are, do they actually make this a part of the comics, too? Does he do this in the comics? None that I'm ever aware of. Any of this stuff. Not the cellophane S. Not teleporting. <laughs> there is a character called Multiple Man who can make multiples of himself, but it's not Kal-El. No, and you got Mirror Master, but he's a Flash villain. All the villains, they combine their strength, and you'd think this would be enough to kill Superman. But nope, Superman fights them all off. Well, I hate how weak this makes them all seem. What I love about this scene is just how unhinged Zod is. If there is a hint of non-control, he just loses his fucking mind. And here he's grabbing his hands, grunting through his teeth, knowing that he's pretty much losing control. They then play the disappearing game that Adam mentioned, where Ursa is seen kicking a replica of Superman, and Lois is even hugging a replica. And Superman ends up with Zod in his grasp. Does the fact that Superman says he used to play this in school make any bit of sense? (laughs) No. None. Though I'll say, when he grabbed Zod and put his arm around him, I yelled out, snap his neck. Yeah. (laughs) With Zod in his grasp, Ursa says to release him or they'll tear Lois apart. He does, and Zod has had enough. Lex makes his way to them and goes to Superman, who for some reason gets pissed that Lex gives up his plan to lure them into a trap. Like, he didn't see this fucking coming? Well, he did see this coming, which is the whole point. Yeah. I love that he knows that Lex Luthor is so untrustworthy and that he's just a snake. That it's it's a ruse, and I love that Superman is smart enough to make him all fall for mm-hmm. it. Yeah, he just he can't, he can't break kayfabe yet. Zod tells Lex to activate the machine, and Superman walks right into it. Lois is crying because she's been here before. He goes in, and we don't see any of the effects we saw before. In fact, all the light is outside the chamber. When he emerges, he's still in the suit. And as he kneels before Zod, he crushes his hand and throws him into the fortress's pit. I know people have massive problems with this, but I can't help it. I fucking love this reveal. After the hell this guy put the country through in the entire course of this film, this just feels so triumphant to me. I love it. I'm one of those people. We will talk about, when I say talk, we will debate Man of Steel for a considerable amount of time. 
But to that movie's defense, it's not the first time Superman openly murdered someone on film. <laughs> they throw all these three criminals into the abyss, and presumably, since they're without their powers, they die. I have never been a fan of this. I think because the first movie went out of its way to send Lex to jail, you could have sent the depowered ones. You know, they started the movie in a prison, had them end the movie in a prison. I've never liked killing them off like this, and Superman being so joyous about it. Oh, God. Uh, Again, I, this was a day when it was I, a fucking complete film to me. I think you have to kill him. When I love Superman kneeling, and then the reveal that he has his powers by crushing Zod's hand. I think Stamp is fantastic. I love that reveal. And I am a huge fan of all the Kryptonians getting killed here. I've never been one who says that Superman doesn't kill. I don't agree with that. I think when it comes to it, I think when it comes to protecting Earth, though I think there is an argument to be made that these people have been depowered, so they can't take it over anymore. But I've never had qualms with Superman killing, ever. Mm-hmm. So this doesn't sit wrong with me. In fact, I absolutely love it, including Lois getting her shot in on Ursa. Some great stuff here. Even though when he stands up, it's so clearly a dummy in his hands, it's still a great moment. Dumbass Non, not knowing that his powers are gone as he tries flying but falls right into the pit. And in a smart move, they have Lois be the one who knocks out Ursa. It wouldn't have been a good look to have Superman do this. No, let's remember Frank Miller hasn't written Superman yet at this point. (laughs) Lex congratulates himself for helping Superman lure them into the trap, but Superman is having none of it as he flies away with Lois in tow. Now in the Donner cut, as a sign that he no longer needs his dad or parents in general, Superman destroys the fortress with his laser vision. He then flies around the world to make Lois forget about his secret, and it's here where Donner includes some weird (laughs) shots of Perry White's toothpaste going back into the tube. I'm not sure I'm down with Superman destroying his one link to his home planet. Matt, you grunted first. You go ahead. Yeah, this is the nearly fatal flaw with the Donner cut, is that he has to repeat the same ending because it was always intended to be here. And I don't like it regardless. I don't like it here. I don't like it there. I do not like green eggs and ham. Mr. Donner, I have never liked this idea. It's a weak ending because it's the only ending that they had because they didn't shoot properly, and I've never liked it. I didn't like spinning the earth back before, not to mention, if you're going to turn back time, you don't get to selectively choose what you're turning back. You kind of turn back all of it, and then you have to do it all over again, but whatever. Who cares about non-physics? <laughs> Literally, just... non-physics because he fell into the pit. <laughs> <laughs> But I wasn't a fan of it last week. I'm not a fan of it this week. And I've never gotten deciding that you're going to get rid of your Fortress of Solitude. I think you can do more with having that be such a source of inspiration and someplace to go in times of fear and doubt. And so that getting rid of it just never sits right with me. If you listen to Donner on the commentary, he had plans for Superman's 3, 4, and 5. And what he was going to do with this was going to actually come to fruition in next week's film if he had a chance to make it. But I don't know, man. I agree with you guys. I just don't think this is a wise choice. Oh, he had plans for three, four, and five. Hey, Mr. Snyder, sometimes you got to make a good movie in front of you before you plan five films down the road. Yeah, you're not kidding. Superman drops Lois off at home, and she swears she'll never tell anyone who he is. We cut back to the Daily Planet, where Lois is sitting with a pack of Marlboros in tow. <laughs> she probably raided the truck. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so remember at the beginning of this podcast, I said there's a scene that I believe to be the greatest bit of acting Margot Kidder has ever done. We have arrived as here. She has to talk to Clark through tears about how tormented she feels knowing that she can't even think about a follow-up to dating the guy closest to God that anyone will ever know and how it hurts letting him go. 
just great, great acting here by her. But what isn't great... There's a but. Yeah, there's a huge but to that statement. I want you to finish it. (laughs) What isn't great is how Lester chose to have Clark decide to make her forget, which is with a magical kiss. I think there needs to be a scene of them having a discussion. There needs to be a, look, I can't do this to you again. I can't put you in danger. Lois needs to make the decision that she knows they can't be together. And it's kind of there, but it's not completely there. He also takes too much initiative. The way to do this is the ending of the first Men in Black movie, when Kay yeah. tells him to neuralize him. That's kind of the how I wanted this scene to play out, as it is, aside from the fact that, Again, Superman can do whatever the hell he wants. As Adam said, I don't like that. Apparently the conversation was left in the Phantom Zone as well. Because they don't try to fight it or argue. Like, Clark's like, no, we can make it work. And he's just like, all right, I'll kiss you and make you forget. Neither of these movies has a strong ending, which is why, like I said, I think both of them are, are imperfect. I think I'm more forgiving of the Lester version than you two. Just because I'm in emotion of the moment. While Lois is expressing her torment, it would not have worked showing Clark do something full of action. It works for me, but the idea that Superman can make people forget with a kiss is very silly. And Adam, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't they do this in the comics like after this too? It had happened before. I want to say there was two or three instances in the like 62, 63, but it had been one-off type stuff. But then they did use it afterwards, yeah. And yeah, I agree. I think Margot Kidder is fantastic here. I believe her plight. I believe her emotion in this. I just think it needs to be explained more. I bring the knowledge to it. The film doesn't give it. And then... In a scene that makes zero sense, especially in the Donner cut, we cut to the greaser in the diner as he's asking for more garbage, and here's Clark to say that he's never seen garbage eat garbage before. Clark approaches him, (laughs) great line, and the guy realizes he can't punch him as he's made of steel. Clark then spins the guy in his chair and pushes him into a pinball machine. He gives the owner a handful of bills, apologizing for the damage. When the guy looks at him in amazement, Clark just says, Oh, I've been working out. A line I've used a hundred times. Please forgive me. I know I'm going to get yelled at for this, but I really do like this scene. I think it's a great way to end this. I don't like that Superman. I, I feel like Superman. What, this Superman wouldn't be this petty. and go back and <laughs> beat someone up. <laughs> You're kind of wrong. Especially if you think about, is this in the Donner Cut at all? It is, yeah. This is Donner's then it's, then it's dumb to include that because this guy would have forgotten. Exactly. Yeah, that's why it makes it stupid. <laughs> the name of the diner is Don's Diner. So, yes, this is all Donner. And Donner actually made an appearance in this diner when they were filming there. There's a little cameo of him earlier in the film. So, yeah, this is all Donner stuff. And I agree with you. It is really, really ridiculous when you think about it. I'm not crazy about either. At this point, I think both of them have really disappointing endings. One, because of what they chose in practicality, and the other because they couldn't do what they intended. It's dumb. It's silly. Superman does not act out of revenge and vengeance, and I absolutely love this scene. It's just him walking in, him doing it. the way that Reeve even delivers the lines, I just think is fantastic. It even working out a little bit. He's weak into the camera's spinning him up on the stool, throwing him into the pinball machine. I feel like I'm watching it for the first time. Yeah, it's capped off with the Superman-type moment, though, because he does pay for the damage. He's like, sorry about the damage, sir, as he's giving him, like, I don't know, was this $2,000? He pulls a Han Solo. We cut to Superman carrying the flag to the White House, apologizing for his absence as of late. He promises it won't happen again as he flies away, waves at the camera, or as I used to think as a child, to me... As credits roll. I gotta say one thing, because I just thought of it. So he tells the president, I'm never gonna leave you again. 
And Superman Returns takes place in this continuity. <laughs> oh, damn. That's a good point. Just keep that in mind, because they sold that movie on being the daughter universe entirely. <laughs> they said, fuck Richard Lester, but yet they... Uh, we'll talk about that down the road. We sure will. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give Superman 2, no matter what cut it is? Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. As a kid, this was the film that when I was watching a Superman movie, especially one of these first early ones, this is the one I put on. It had action, it had adventure, it had romance, it had villains that I thought were pretty dang awesome. And that holds today. I think it does a good job as much as we're picking it apart. Yeah, there's moments I don't like, there's moments I think are silly. I think it's inconsistent throughout, but there's a reason for that. There was two directors, there was Puzo still getting his three picture size script getting ripped apart to make a screenplay out of. So there's a lot that worked against it. But I think the characters that are here, I think the acting that's done on screen between Stamp and Reeve and even Kidder, I think elevate this movie to new heights. <laughs> Ursa, you know, I think is an absolute delight. Non is there. I, he's got a role to play, but it's a, it's a Bond villain. It's that silent muscle role. I don't think this movie is anywhere near as magical or as important as the first one. I like it better, but I also acknowledge it is not as good of a movie as Superman, the, the motion picture. But it's one that I enjoy quite a bit. It's amazing that this movie ends on Superman at the White House putting the flag back because DC has done so much to take truth, justice, and the American way away from Superman anymore. But this lets you know back then that that's kind of what Superman was about. Killing the Kryptonians doesn't bug me. Yeah, the cellophane has bugs me a little bit. It still makes me laugh. It takes me back to being a kid where I thought it was cool as an adult. I don't, but this movie harkens back to my childhood even more than the first one. I'm not going to score it as high as the first, even though personally I like it better. I acknowledge it's not as good as the film, but it's still a solid Superman movie. I'm going to give this one a good 8. 8 out of 10 from Mr. Bunch. Goudreau, you are the not big Superman fan. What did you think of watching Superman 2 again? So I have to be honest, I was very surprised at how much I enjoyed this movie because my knowledge and recollection of it was more of being annoyed by the comedy. And as I've gotten older, I realized that, oh, it's nothing more absurd than what we've seen in the first movie. It's very much still in that universe. As a point of preference, I do like Donner's cut more until the last ten minutes. There was only so much they could do, but it does dampen my overall thoughts on that movie. And while they are considerably different, I don't think it's enough for me to give them a crevice-sized gap in my scores. So I have the same score for both movies because I think they're both flawed. But what's here, universally across both versions, I do really like. I think the villains make this movie, and I'm also somewhat disappointed that the crux of Superman giving up his duty is both addressed and handled so quickly, and you have to watch another version for it to be superior. So I wish there was a way to combine both cuts and just change the ending completely. Who knows, maybe we'll get that someday. But it's not as good as the first movie, either version, just because there are those issues that both cuts just cannot fix. But not enough for me to give it a huge step down from the first, because I gave that one an 8. And I enjoy this, both versions, just as much, but there are those flaws that are just inescapable. Much like the Phantom Zone, unless you have nuclear missiles. So I'm going to give both cuts a 7 on 10. I think they're both valid. I think they're both good. But I don't think one is this giant improvement over the other. They're both good, but they're not perfect, and they couldn't be. 
you can pretty much cut a lot of what both of you guys have said and put it into my review because I feel pretty much the same exact way. You listen to the Donner Cut commentary, Mankiewicz says that after they finished doing part one, and part one came out and was a massive success, when they were finishing two, they were like, now we can have fun. Because now we've gotten all the origin out of the way. Let's just have fun with these three. And let's just have fun showing Superman be the Superman. And start fighting bad guys and put him in situations where he has to find his way out. And that's what they do here. And I think the disjointedness of the behind the scenes, once you know about it, it kind of dampens a little bit when you watch both versions. Because both versions, you can see the flaws. And yes, I do think there are flaws with the Donner Cut. Although I'm like Matt, I do find the Donner Cut a little bit better. Uh, Just with the emphasis of what's going on. But again, I cannot recommend watching that Donner Cut because there's too many little things here and there like the audition scene and everything that just makes it feel more like a... not, Not a studio film, not a professionally made film. But still, with this movie in tow, Superman 2, to me, is an 8 out of 10. As a kid, this was the fun I had. I used to have Superman figures. I used to have wrestlers who I'd pretend were the Kryptonian villains, and they would fight each other all the time. This was a big thing with me. I would reenact these scenes a lot, these fighting scenes. I would reenact grabbing a pillow, making it the mirror that retorts, Zod's laser beams. All of this stuff was so much fun to me as a kid. And I can find myself, as I review this in a critical light, going back to those years and finding myself really enjoying it again in that way. But like you guys, I see the flaws. There are definitely flaws, especially in the final third of this movie, with both cuts. But I still had a lot of fun with this. It is an 8 out of 10. And these two movies are definitely one movie. I really don't like the fact that we don't have the definitive cut. A combination of the two, as Matt said, a fan edit would be great. But what we get is still pretty good. So 8 out of 10 for me. Okay, next week's film is a turning point, (laughs) to say the least. And Adam, if you said this week's film was the one that you watched the most as a kid, guess what? Superman 3 was the one... I watched the most as a kid, despite having straight nightmares, which I'll get to when we get to that film. Adam, what do you remember about Superman 3? One word, computers. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe two words, supercomputers. (laughs) I remember supercomputers, I remember Richard Pryor, and I remember evil Superman. And yeah, I have seen this movie a bunch of times, no pun intended, but... Wow, yeah, I know this movie well. I also think it had the absolute worst trailer possible. If anybody wants to watch it before this discussion, go do it. It tells you what happens at the beginning, it tells you what happens at the middle, and it tells you how the movie ends, which is unfreaking believable. <laughs> but I remember a lot about Superman 3, and I can't wait to discuss it. Goudreau, you know, in all the years I've known you, and we've been friends for quite a while now, I don't think I've ever had one discussion with you about Superman 3. What do you remember about next week's film? How much do you want me to say? (laughs) (laughs) Let me just say, I'll say this. I feel like we are going to have a role reversal where when we got to the Schumacher Batman movies, more so forever, I was much kinder than you guys were. I think the roles are going to be split, and I'm going to have that perspective going in. Sort of that Adam does about Batman Forever Going into this, I feel about Superman 3, the way he feels about Batman Forever, where I think it's garbage, and it's appropriate that Superman fights himself in a garbage pile, because I think that's where this movie belongs, but who knows? <laughs> I have not seen this movie in 10 years. The last time I watched it, and the first time I watched it, was when Man of Steel was coming out. Mm. So, who knows? Maybe I'll be proven wrong, 
But if that happens, I will be very surprised. God damn, has it been 10 years since Man of Steel already? I guess it has been. Yeah, no. Yeah. Wow. All right, so until next week when we talk about Superman 3, come to me, son of Jor-El, podcast before Zod. Thank you, gentlemen. Once more, we've survived the threat of war and found a fragile peace. I thought I could give you all the gift of the freedom from war, but I was wrong. It's not mine to give. We're still a young planet. There are galaxies out there, other civilizations for us to meet, to learn from. What a brilliant future we could have. And there will be peace. There will be peace when the people of the world want it so badly that their governments will have no choice but to give it to them. I just wish you could all see the Earth the way that I see it. Because when you really look at it, it's just one world. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. Hey, Jim Jones! That's a bad outfit! Join us next week for an entirely new review. I see you are practiced in worshipping things that fly. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Mind over muscle. Edited by Garrett. Hey, that man's a miracle. Voiceovers by Adam. Ruler of Australia, activate the mission. Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Feelings. We all have our little faults. Mine's in California.
First, Sarah Douglas as Ursa. She might have been my first bad girl crush, honestly. She has some great scenes yeah. later on. <laughs> What's that? Who said something here? Somebody said something. Sorry, that was me going, yep. Okay. <laughs> you and me both there, buddy, with her. <laughs> Lark's, uh, Lark. Lex starts grabbing crys- random... Uh, let me try that again. Lex starts grabbing random crystals. <laughs> before cradling it like yeah. a baby. <laughs> yeah. Very silly. Yeah, I don't like that they basically made him Solomon Grundy. Who's that? that that's a great comparison, yes. Who, who's that? Uh, how much time do you have on this podcast? Oh, where's he from? <laughs> Just say where he's from. He's D.C. Okay. All right. D.C. He's he, basically the big lumbering, um, almost like a Frankenstein monster, like a zombie come back to life. Okay. Solomon Grundy, born on a Monday. We cut... That's why I like it in the Donner cut because everything comes full circle, right, Matt? Yeah, the, and the best would have been, you know, he shows up all beat up and you hear his voice yes. of his father and he goes, Are you the Domino's delivery boy? <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have thrown it to you. <laughs> I didn't like spinning the earth back before, not to mention, if you turn back time, you know, hang on, did it last week. If I can turn back, t- if you're going to turn back time, I guess it died of acid indigestion.